Full Disclosure Live, welcome to Ace the Midterms. We are mere weeks away from this hotly contested 2018 election. The Dems are still seething over Trump 2016 and the GOP's grip on Capitol Hill. Republicans, for their part, want to parlay their legislative and Supreme Court victories into rare gains in this first Trump midterm. With all this drama in the DC and the RVA, who needs Netflix? Stay with us. Tonight's special program is sponsored by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia Restaurants, a good friend of this show, and the many chefs and owners of RVA Dine. Named one of Forbes America's best large employers. Visit them at pfgc.com. And by Solomon Ludwin, an investment and financial planning firm consistently ranked by Barron's, the FT, and Forbes as one of the top advisors in the country. They're just like six or seven miles away. It's amazing. Uh, visit them online at solomonludwin.com. Joining me on stage at the venerable 187-year-old Virginia Museum of History and Culture, three shining stars of the Washington press corps from left to right, not ideologically. That is <laughs> Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent at NBC News. Hello. Sitting next to Jeff, Nancy Cordes, chief congressional correspondent at CBS News. Hey, everybody. And next to Nancy is Rick Klein, ABC News' political director. Hey, guys. Thank you, thank you for schlepping out here in the heat of this midterm in the VAO 7th. Um, by way of full disclosure, I have to tell you that uh, Jeff Bennett used to book me on a weekend edition uh, on NPR. I worked with him. I loved him so much that I brought him to help launch uh, this podcast four years ago. And um, he's clearly slipped in his career now that he's White House correspondent <laughs> at NBC. Rick Klein was my editor at the college newspaper 20, 25 years ago, and he resisted the urge to fire me several times, literally. So um, it's especially forgiving of him to be here. So those two admissions aside, I have another admission. I have a meaning of life question that I pose to my father-in-law, uh, my, my rabbi, uh, my mentors, my therapist, and I'm gonna pose it to Nancy Cordes. Oh dear. <laughs> Who, pray tell, currently leads the Democrats? Because I have no idea. That is a question that we all ask ourselves on Capitol Hill all the time. And there's a, a second question, which is, is anyone leading the Democrats? Because a couple of years after this surprise election of Donald Trump, uh, we're still waiting to see this cohesive Democratic message emerge? What is the counter message to Donald Trump? Yes, if you go around the country and you cover these midterm races, you've got a lot of talk candidates talking about Obamacare, about Medicare, about Medicaid, but the party has not been able to distill its message the same way that Donald Trump was able to two years ago. You knew exactly what he stood for. He stood for building the wall. Um, he, he stood for a whole bunch of things that were new to the Republican Party, as a matter of fact. But um, that is something that the Democratic Party still seems to be struggling with, even as we head into this uh, midterm home stretch. And I'd add to that, that it, even if we knew the answer, it really wouldn't matter, because the Democratic primary voters are going to have a different answer to that, almost certainly, uh, you know, starting not, more, not much more than a year from now. I, I remember back to the, the, early, the early days of the uh, Obama, uh, Obama White House, and people would ask that question. A not uncommon answer at the time, back in 2009, 2010, was Sarah Palin, um, because it was viewed that she was a potential presidential frontrunner in 2012, and, and then, of course, Mitt Romney gets nominated, and then Trump blows up the party a couple years later anyway. So it's not, it's not an unfamiliar problem to be the party out that 
cannot find uh, uh, the person of a leader. Uh, right now, what motivates Democrats is not being Donald Trump. That's working in lots of places, including right here in Richmond to some degree. Uh, and and I don't I don't anticipate that they're going to the Democrats are really going to be able to answer that question until they go through what's going to be a wrenching, long, very crowded presidential primary process. It's and true. What, what blows my mind, Jeff, is that um, the Republicans, if you look at the uh, ads here that. Um, and in the debate that uh, Dave Bratt is running against Abigail Spanberger, they're still running against Nancy Pelosi. It's like the Dems used to run against Newt Gingrich after the contract with America yeah. until Newt Gingrich finally left. I mean, it's this boogeyman that the other party almost needs. Nancy Pelosi, the old, old foil, right? It's, but I think in the absence of sort of the national democratic leadership, what you're seeing from the president is to cast all Democrats, as he puts it, as an angry mob. And that was the big question after the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. After Republicans get what they want, how do you still fuel that emotional intensity that's necessary uh, for a victory in the midterms. And what Donald Trump has done is to say, the way that Democrats behave during that three-week confirmation process, that is emblematic of how Democrats will behave if they take the House and Senate. So he's saying to his supporters, you won't get the border wall. There'll be no more conservative justices like a Neil Gorsuch and a Brett Kavanaugh. And Democrats might, e might even try to impeach me. So that is the way he's trying to fuel the emotional intensity, the anger that, frankly, historically, we know that anger is one of the motivators that drives people out to the polls. And for better or for worse, one of the things Donald Trump does best is to really animate his base of supporters around anger and resentment and fear. And so far, it appears that it's working for him. Nancy, it blows my mind. It's, this, it's almost this Jedi mind trick type thing. I was in D.C. on the day of the Kavanaugh hearings where it got really contested with uh, Senator Klobuchar and everything else. And uh, it just had this, this funeral type atmosphere. And you're like, why? You're thinking to yourself, why are you provoking a part of the electorate that is decidedly against you and then throwing them um, you know, insult on injury when he was at that campaign rally. And then you saw something like the horse face comment uh, just, you know, yesterday or two days ago. And I'm wondering to myself, is that net positive in terms of the base that's going to get out under some sort of thinking? It's certainly not a positive with women. And I think that that's a big concern uh, for the Republican Party, you know, and, and a lot of Republican members of Congress their, their approach is, I'm just not even going to comment anymore because it doesn't do, doesn't do any good. It doesn't change anything, and it only provokes the ire of the president. He might turn some of that anger on me. So we were um, sitting with the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, the other day in a, a small interview setting uh, with uh, other, other reporters, and he was asked about that horse face comment, and he said, I just, I don't, I don't comment on the president's tweets. I don't have anything to say. Um, and it's very interesting when the president makes a comment like that, which people will tell you candidly, uh, is they, they view as very damaging. But Republican leaders at this point aren't interested in calling it out because they don't think it does them any good. I don't get it from a pure tactical perspective. You must be mindful of the fact that there are record number of women running for Capitol Hill, that people are fired up over the Kavanaugh hearings, over Trump's even 2016 vintage. How, aside from kind of an emotional moment of peak, does that calculate? I was on the South Lawn. This was before the Stormy Daniels insult. It was the day that the president came out and said, he was asked, my colleague Peter Alexander says, you know, what message does this send to young men? This was sort of in the height of the Kavanaugh confirmation. And he said, I think, uh, I'm scared for young men. I think women are doing great in this country, but I'm afraid of what this message sends to young men and boys. Uh, and after I spoke to a White House official and I said, well, what, what was that about? For the reasons that you just uh, brought up, and it, the, the response was, the president feels like talking about the inverse of the Me Too movement has hit on sort of a cultural undercurrent that he thinks works for him. 
he believes that he, think, he thinks he's right on the merits because he even said that one of the reasons why he tends to side with the accused over the accusers is because he feels like he's been falsely accused. Um, but he also thinks it works well for him politically. I think that is a really powerful concept to think about when you think about President Trump. He ran against political correctness, and I think his, his, a lot of the support he got from non-traditional parts of the electorate were people that were reacting to the idea that this is the way it's always been and this is how politicians always speak and they bring up the next one and it's Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton is kind of forced down everyone's throats. I, 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 think that, I think that actually says a lot. And I think in terms of the tactics or strategy, if it is there, I, I, I think the, the calculation is if you have this universe of voters that has already turned on you, you can't lose them twice. You can make them really, really angry, but they can still only vote once. And President Trump is not going to win suburban women. They're gone. You know, it's, it really is just a question of the margins. Uh, so the idea that, that playing to them in this 11th hour of a campaign the last couple of weeks would mitigate, I don't think that's the Trump playbook. I think it is to go back to the base, to remind them of the stakes, uh, and to, to press on these cultural issues. I think there's a, there's a line you can draw from the point that, that Jeff's making here about the Me Too movement right through the attacks on, on Colin Kaepernick for, the, for taking a knee during the national anthem. He understands, or thinks he understands, this, the, the power of some of these symbols uh, in terms of getting his voters out and, and ready, to, ready to support a midterm candidate like they did him. Do you guys spend much time navel-gazing like I do with the Venn diagram of the people that Obama won in 2008 and 2012 versus, I mean, some of these people went and voted for Trump. That is a fascinating intersection or what was in that mindset, be it in Wisconsin or Michigan or places that you thought were absolutely automatic for Hillary. Yeah, and we def I mean, we've, we've focused a lot on those districts because they were majority makers for, uh, for, for President Trump. And there's a not insignificant portion of the country that went that way. They went for Obama once or twice uh, and, and then flipped all the way to Trump. Um, there's a, there's a, a great book that just came out a couple weeks ago. My former colleague at the Boston Globe, Ben Bradley Jr., spent a lot of time in Luzerne County uh, outside. Um, it's in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, outside Scranton. And uh, that's one of these areas that's traditionally Democratic. Um, he interviewed a lot of people that used to be Democrats and were Democrats all their lives, but they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. And they saw in Donald Trump something that really spoke to them. And they said, finally, someone is talking about these issues in ways that I understand. Well, and one thing that I heard out on the campaign trail over and over again was, what have we got to lose? You know, this feeling in a lot of these small towns that um, had been hollowed out, that the job opportunities weren't there, um, civic and cultural institutions weren't as robust as they used to be, and there was this sense that, you know, what have we got to lose by going with this guy? He's a businessman. He says he's going to bring back the jobs. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, but why not take a chance? And it's the issue of authenticity, too. I mean, if there is a through line between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, I think that would be the, the one thing. And even <laughs> as you look, I mean, we're talking about 2018, but if you look to 2020, on the Democratic side, you have, like, what, the Michael Avenatti, the Mark Cubans, the, the uh, I say Avenatti and their gasps in the room. But it's, it's the sense that, that, that the electorate wants someone who they view as authentic. And it's even one of the reasons why Better Our Work is doing well, better than most Democrats would have ever done in Texas. Jeff Bennett, talk to me about deliverables. Because this tandem of Mitch McConnell, uh, manning the Senate, this master tactician that we hear everything about, maybe Paul Ryan on the way out holding his nose, and Donald Trump, it's actually kind of a triangulated um, concept here. They have deliverables. They can come and say that we scrapped NAFTA and we redefined yeah. it. We shut off the borders, um, you know, despite all the optics. Um, we got you two Supreme Court justices, enormous fiscal stimulus. Um, 
you know, talking it up left and right. And certainly he talks his book and the best economy in the stock market. Um, no one could have predicted that. And I guess these guys just have a, a good kind of universal pain threshold. They do, and to deal with one the another. relationship, and Nancy can speak to this too, I think the relationship is, if not entirely, I'd say mostly transactional for, for that issue. And Mitch McConnell has spoken about the thing that he thinks will be his legacy is the fact that he's confirmed so many judges, uh, conservative judges, to the federal bench. And the two of them together, the president and Don McGahn, the dearly departed uh, White House counsel, have really worked on this sort of legacy issue for Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, which is reshaping the federal judiciary. And that is really what has cemented a conservative coalition behind Donald Trump. Even people who have and had misgivings about Donald Trump, the man, Republicans I'm talking about, have put up with a lot, they say, because of this potential for him to cement you know, a right-leaning majority on the Supreme Court for a generation and remake you know, the federal bench as well. And Mitch McConnell really pulled off something of a hat trick this month. I mean, to fire, find a way to fire up your own base, which had been really kind of... Um, not that enthused, you know, they were obviously getting beaten the money game, beaten the enthusiasm game by Democrats. Suddenly, these Kavanaugh hearings galvanize the base, at least to some degree. You know, we don't know if they can sustain that kind of enthusiasm the way that we've seen from Democrats over the past year and a half. And he gets Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. But this list of accomplishments they're finding out on the campaign trail is kind of a mixed bag. Because when you talk about tax cuts, yes, that was a huge accomplishment. You talk about NAFTA. It's difficult to sell that out in the country, you know, at least according to the polling, because a lot of people aren't necessarily feeling the impact of those policies in their wallet yet. You know, we are here in 2018, and we're still talking back at the, uh, the huge tectonic shift of the 2010 midterm, which I didn't see at the time. You know, we're coming out of the haze of the great bailout, the great recession. Everybody was talking about shovel-ready back then. The, the health care plan was there. You know, public option was a bad word. But it strikes me that Mitch McConnell, and maybe even Boehner to a certain extent back then, they had a long game planned out, that you start first at the state chambers, and you, you control the map, and then you work with the governor's mansions. We saw that stat, something like 1,100 seats across the board were lost by the Democrats under Barack Obama. And I'm just not struck that there is an equivalent tactician on the Democrat side. I, and I, I, I feel like you may be giving a little too much credit, not, not even particularly to, to Boehner or McConnell. I, they, didn't, they, they didn't create the Tea Party wave that swept them into office. In fact, Boehner was kind of the antithesis of that. He survived despite that and ended up being felled by those folks. Right here in Richmond, I don't think I have to tell you about what happens when an establishment poll runs up against the Tea Party. They benefited from this, but I, they, didn't, they didn't really create it. I do think there's a, there's a powerful donor network that has spent a long time bringing legislative policy throughout the country, bringing judges up the pipeline, that I, and I agree with you that they don't have, there's not really something similar on the left, but that was, that was, that was pretty organic, actually. So, but what is the invisible hand that guides that? You're saying it's organic, but isn't there somebody that has to say, look, we don't have a bullpen. Is it the DNC, or look, we have issues, or what you saw happen in the 2016 election with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, we can't thwart another candidate just like that behind the scenes. It's not good for the base, doesn't look good to millennials. I know I kind of sound like, you know, a neurotic uh, patient on the therapist couch, which, which I am, really. <laughs> uh, but this is what I'm trying to get at right now. If you are infuriated like the Democratic base is, if you're charged up, if you're champing at the bit, um, don't you want to have a leader? Don't you want to have somebody rallying you? Well, I think that cuts both ways. You know, I think that uh, a lot of Democrats have been urging Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to lay low. 
because they know that they are a target. And frankly, probably anyone who was leading the Democratic Party would be a target, not just of the president's, but also of these conservative groups that are spending millions of dollars, just like Democratic groups are. Um, but Democrats don't tend to make Mitch McConnell a boogeyman the same way that Republicans do with, with Nancy Pelosi. And so, um, you know, you talk about all of these potential 2020 contenders. You know, they're all circling, they're popping their heads up and they're looking around, but none of them necessarily want to be the face of the party because then you get all that firepower trained on you two years before you run for president. You don't want to be you get a Twitter nickname. <laughs> yeah, that's, the president will attack you. But yeah. I don't think you want to be the front, the Democratic front right. runner right now. I don't think right. that's a comfortable position to be either for the, the president may actually build you up inside the Democratic Party, but but certainly for the others, I mean, it's going to be crowded. And I, I, this isn't this isn't advice to Democrats so much as just I think a recognition of the realities. You're not going to get, I don't think, the Democrats to just have someone anointed as. And I think one of the mistakes Democrats have made in the past is when they've tried to do that. I mean, I think it's to me instructive looking over the broader history of the Democratic Party, looking back over the last 50 years, um, probably the biggest success that the Democrats have had is not anointing someone on the inside, but finding someone young and fresh from John Kennedy through Bill Clinton to Barack Obama, someone from really outside the, the typical corridors of power and, and someone that comes in and is exciting and young and new and, and fresh. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are acing the midterms live from the Virginia Museum of History and Culture on the boulevard in the R of VA. We're joined on stage by Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent for NBC News, Nancy Cordes, chief congressional correspondent at CBS News, and Rick Klein, political director at ABC News. Uh, I'd like to take it uh, offshore a bit. And the news that we're getting out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I saw something today, I didn't verify it yet, but apparently uh, one of this alleged 15-person hit team uh, from Riyadh died mysteriously in a car accident today. Um, uh, you know, it, it's all starting to approximate to look like a, a, a James Bond movie or at, at, at worst, like an Austin Powers film. Uh, <laughs> it puts the administration in a very awkward position, Jeff Bennett, in that he put his eggs all in this basket with Pompeo and Saudi Arabia, and this is supposed to be a peerless ally in a sea of hostility. He came over here, invested in all this armament, mm -hmm. and now they kind of own it. With the caveat that the Trump administration is not the first one to sort of value its strategic partnership with Saudi Arabia over its sort of moral responsibility. Um, we have seen the president, I think, try to run out the clock a little bit this, this past week, and now uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says uh, that he's going to give Saudi Arabia uh, time. I think there are three concurrent investigations right now, but he wants to give, a, give it a couple of days to see what these investigations find and the president will weigh in. We know Secretary Steve Mnuchin is not going to this Davos in the desert forum, and that was sort of a big deal, a wait and see. But the, the, the greater issue is that Saudi Arabia has so many different ways to retaliate in kind, depending on if or how the U.S. decides to bring the severe punishment Donald Trump has threatened, you know, if they are found to have been involved in this. There is so much Saudi money in U.S. real estate, in the U.S. tech industry, clearly in the oil markets. And there's a concern that, that not only they could, you know, retaliate in that way, but also that the U.S. views Saudi Arabia as sort of like the central figure in our Mideast policy. They see it central to containing Iran. So for all of those reasons, that really has informed and articulated sort of this uh, muted, handcuffed response we've seen from the Trump administration so far. Am I using dated uh, intel in, in believing that Turkey is a NATO member? They are a NATO member. So allegedly, uh, a Virginia-based journalist at Donald Trump's hometown newspaper 
allegedly gets kidnapped and tortured and potentially worse on the grounds of a consulate at a NATO member nation. And I think about that and I think also about the scurple poisoning in the UK and I think about various things that have happened in the Philippines and the odd position that it has put this president in who likes to extol people who are strong leaders abroad for better or for worse. Sure, and you know the fact that perhaps not all of his cabinet members, um, high-ranking members of his administration, share that affinity. Certainly not all Republicans in Congress share that affinity. And so um, this is a situation where you could have a president, his senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, somewhat at odds with the rest of his own administration and Republicans in Congress when it comes time to decide what to do. You already saw that tension building over the course of the week. Um, his, his BFF, Lindsey Graham, suddenly and very dramatically parting ways with the president on this issue, really calling out Saudi Arabia. How does, how does that work? Behind the scenes, are you told you have the moral suasion to go out and play bad cop? I mean, you're, think, you're hearing about this guy potentially becoming the next AG. Right. You know, so it's not clear whether he did that with the president's blessing or not. I mean, Lindsey Graham is, is, loves to be unpredictable. Um, and, you know, he loves to sort of veer one way just when you expect that he's going to go the other way. Um, and he wasn't alone. I mean, you know, Lindsey Graham is a, he's a hawk, first and foremost. So he may agree, agree with the president on a whole host of other issues. But when it comes to this, you know, it's pretty clear that he was going to part ways. And he does not necessarily have the, fi the personal financial interest in Saudi Arabia that uh, many people think that the president and his, his son-in-law have. So, so one other thing I think is, is useful in the way that I think about President Trump is that often he says things out loud that have always been whispered. And maybe it gets back to the political correctness thing. But to Jeff's point, not the first administration to have a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, if this had happened in a hypothetical Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or still during the Obama or Clinton, Clinton years, I have no doubt that the, the president would be condemning in very harsh terms uh, and there would be talk of, uh, of cutting off arms deals and all of these things. But where the action actually lands, I'm not, I'm not sure that this would be the kind of thing that would result in cutting off all diplomatic relationships, cutting off all military support and aid uh, and, and, and dramatic draconian action. I think there would be action and there may still be action. We don't really know where President Trump is gonna, gonna, gonna do. We kind of, I think he's tipped his hand. But I, I do think he, his, his gut reaction uh, on this of, well, I don't want to, I don't want to jeopardize $100 billion in arms sales, and I don't want to jeopardize all of the, the financial relationships here. It, it's not 180 degrees from how other presidents might have done it under, under similar circumstances. His rhetoric is, he, I don't think any other president would have immediately gone out of his way to say it could have been rogue killers and, and, and seem to accept the Saudi ver version of events. But I, I'm not, I'm not clear that, you know, Congress would be tough on any, in any situation, but they're not the ones that actually have to deal with what the, all of the complicated strands of the relationship with the Saudis uh, actually yeah. means. The one thing I keep coming back to, I think it was Obama who used to always say words have consequences. And you remember uh, Donald Trump's first trip abroad was to Saudi Arabia and he gave that speech in Riyadh where he effectively said, I'm not gonna hassle you guys about human rights issues. And you can almost draw a direct line between that and sort of you know, Saudi adventurism all around the world <laughs> under, under uh, Mohammed bin Salman. 
almost giving him the green light effectively from that very first speech. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to fast forward. Let's suppose the conventional wisdom holds and the New York Times has brought out its needleometer or something again, <laughs> for better or for worse. But let's say the Democrats do take back the House, the conventional wisdom of a net gain of, what, 30 seats or so. Um, and shift us forward to January. Let's say the Republicans keep the Senate and maybe even build a seat or two. What is the first thing that happens? Is Nancy Pelosi the prohibitive favorite for speaker? Do they, are they able to subpoena the president's tax returns? Is Robert Mueller waiting for that moment to come in with his big finding? Walk me through this. So you can never count Nancy Pelosi out. You've got a lot of people out there on the campaign trail right now trying to create some distance. That does not necessarily mean that that's going to be their first priority if and when they get to Congress. Um, Nancy Pelosi, for all the talk over the years uh, about the fact that she's too liberal and the party needs to move in a different direction, she is a powerful fundraiser. She is uh, sort of the undisputed premier tactician in the party. Suddenly, if, if uh, the party takes control of the House, there is a recognition among a lot, especially among a lot of senior members in the party, that you want somebody who really knows what they're doing. But look at the running Young Turks. Look at Ali, look at Ocasio Cortez. Look of at course. Abby Spanberger here, non-committal on. You know, and and in, and it's very possible that that she could be that she you know that that the attempts in the past that have failed could have more energy this time around. But is it but that, she's a formidable is it that force. game of thrones that they don't realize that the optics of this... I mean, I was watching Saturday Night Live after the Kavanaugh confirmation, and look at how they depicted Chuck Schumer. He gets in there, you know, that, that, that locker room party that they spoofed after Kavanaugh was confirmed. He's like, how do you feel, Senator Schumer? He's like, oh, my sciatic. I mean, they right. have their finger on right. the pulse of what's wrong. He's like, we lost. That's what we do. Um, right. And you're trying to get LaCroix-drinking millennials out there to get excited. And the ones who are, they are getting excited about, even though Ocasio-Cortez is very idiosyncratic to New York, even though, you know, Gillum is very idiosyncratic to Florida. Yeah, I just, I, the millennials that uh, Democrats would need to reach in a midterm, I don't think care all that much about Nancy Pelosi. And to Nancy's point, Nancy Pelosi has said, I'm worth the trouble, you know, <laughs> because she does raise so, she raises so much money. Um, so I just don't, I don't see it as an animating issue for Democrats in much the same way it is an anima animating issue for Republicans who, you know, view Nancy Pelosi as the, the boogeyman or boogie lady in the woods. Uh, I, just, I just don't see it that way. I think some of it's going to depend on how big a margin we're talking about. I think if it's two or three votes and you've got people who are on the record saying, I will never vote for Nancy Pelosi, that becomes very hard. If it's 10, 15 uh, seat margin, then I think, you're, I think Nancy, Nancy Cordes is right about Nancy Pelosi. You can't beat someone with no one. The other thing that I think happens on the other side of the midterms, where things do look a lot different, is the case that she and maybe her leadership team more generally can say is like, look, you need someone that knows how to run the trains. We just took this thing over. We've done this before. We need to actually rein in some of the impulses of people that want to immediately start impeachment proceedings and immediately subpoena the taxes and immediately open 100 different investigations. We need to find a way to, to lay out an agenda. I think you saw Nancy Pelosi begin to talk even this week about th they want to do a campaign finance reform right out of the box. They want to do things on guns. They want to do things that unite Democrats and get them excited and have no chance of becoming law to put them on record before they start talking about the other things. Nancy Pelosi does not want to talk about impeaching. She, that's not where she wants to go. 
She wants to see things develop for a long time, and that's not where a lot of the people that would challenge her are thinking. And that's really the central point, is that it's one thing to say, we need to replace Nancy Pelosi. It's another thing to say, and here's who we're going to replace her with. That has always been the challenge in the past. Ironically, the one person who most people assumed would be the likely successor, Joe Crowley, was beaten by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He had done the work over a year of, you know, and, and more of building relationships, using his leadership position to do that. Now that he is gone, uh, you know, the party's a bit fragmented when it comes to who the up-and-coming Democratic leader actually is. And whoever that person is, if they really do want to take on Nancy Pelosi, they're not going to have much time to build a base of support to do it right after the election. Could you, could you describe the Rorschach for me, Nancy, of Beto O'Rourke, what he represents? I see people all over the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams posting his speech, you know, his, his closing right. moment in the debate. And it... I don't know, everybody's tempted to kind of say that maybe it's a Barack Obama 2004 type revelation, maybe it's not. It's an impossible thing for a Democrat to win um, a Senate seat in a burgundy red state against somebody as universally popular as Ted Cruz? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so the Rorschach of Beto O'Rourke, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, I think he is someone who, is, uh, who has the same talent as a Barack Obama or a Bernie Sanders when it comes to uh, enunciating and, and, and crystallizing uh, the progressive agenda in a way that resonates with people, and also someone who doesn't come across as constantly triangulating and saying, oh, well, now I, so you know, what is that I sounded too soft. What is that progressive agenda in three bullets? I think some people take an ad hoc or potluck version of it. Maybe they talk mm -hmm. about universal... They talk about Medicare, universal right. health care. Uh, they talk about uh, preserving the social safety net, Medicaid, uh, Social Security, Medicare. Uh, they talk about cultural issues. You know, a lot of Democrats, as strongly as they may feel about cultural issues, like, um, you know, kneeling football players, something that Beto O'Rourke, you know, uh, really... It's quite uh, eloquent. Was very, it was very eloquent about and got a lot of attention. Um, you know, there are a lot of Democrats who feel strongly about that issue, but there are a lot of Democrats who don't necessarily talk about it as much as he, do, he does because they feel like you know, that might hurt their uh, ability to, to get people in the middle, for example, uh, depending on where they're from. Beto O'Rourke sort of took that bull by the horns and said, this is what I think. And, you know, perhaps he has that freedom because he knows that Texas is a long shot for a Democrat anyway. So you might as well go ahead and, and, and be authentic and be yourself and not try to, you know, thread that, that narrow path and pick up just this many independents who feel this way on that issue and that way on that issue and don't talk about that. You know, that is the one approach and, and, and sometimes, it, um, sometimes it's successful, sometimes it isn't. That's not the approach he's taken. And for Democrats around the country, still demoralized over the loss two years ago um, in the presidential election, it sort of feeds uh, their desire to, you know, to hear these positions um, elucidated in a really full-throated, full-throttle way. And I have a Rorschach for Jeff Bennett. What's that? Bernie Sanders. Oh, Bernie. Not definitionally mm. a Democrat, but his ghost still lingers. In fact, his mural is painted on a wall here, you know, the Bernie brothers uh, feel the burn. A lot of people felt legitimately burnt after that. They thought that he could have taken, especially the Rust Belt areas that were I was going to riff on uh, Beto and Cruz. Is that okay? <laughs> Take me anywhere you want. No, I was it, thinking, it speaks was, to a Nancy longing was, for a new leader. No, as Nancy was talking, I was thinking about this dynamic between like popularity 
and, and party loyalty. And I think that's an issue in Texas because I'm always struck by the number of Trump supporters who don't like Ted Cruz. I covered the NRA convention back in May, and Ted Cruz was there, and Donald Trump said, you know, as he was going through the list of lawmakers who were there, he calls out Ted Cruz. And people in the room started to boo Ted Cruz. It was in I, Texas. Uh, that was in, I think it was in Nashville. I think this year it was in, but, but it was still Trump supporters who were booing Ted Cruz. And I turned, I was going, what is that about? So after I did my live hit for MSNBC, I went down and started talking to people, and it wasn't a policy issue. They didn't like Ted Cruz because they thought that Ted Cruz was weak and didn't stand up to Donald Trump <laughs> when Donald Trump insulted his wife and suggested that his father was involved in killing JFK. And I said to them, well, you realize it was Donald Trump who was saying that about Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah, I know it was Donald Trump, and I didn't like that Ted Cruz didn't stand up for himself. You feel like the Aflac duck just shaking yeah. your head sometimes. And it, it, and it, it, it said one thing about the And then what did Lindsey Graham famously say about Ted Cruz? Uh, what did he say? That if you shot him on the floor of the Senate, no one on the floor of the Senate would oh, vote right. to convict it's, his murderer. The, right. I mean, it's amazing. Right in the end. There was a moment, too, when I think that when Ted Cruz was up to be like a Supreme Court nominee, and people were saying, well, yeah, that'd be great, because we can get him out of the Senate. But I think one that was illustrative of how people feel about Ted Cruz, but also about how Trump supporters feel about Donald Trump, hmm. that even though it was their guy who was talking smack about Ted Cruz's wife, you know, they, they still liked Donald Trump because of who he was and who he represented. It was, uh, for me, it was a moment. Do you want me to take, take Bernie? Bernie? Please. Yeah. So I, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, I got the Donald Trump thing very wrong in my analysis. I got the Bernie thing really, really wrong. I feel like that was a bigger miss for me uh, in that campaign. I, I, like you guys, covered Bernie Sanders for a long time, and he was, you know, the old socialist Jewish guy from Vermont. I mean, this was, a, this was a guy that could barely muster a crowd for his campaign announcement at the Senate Swamp, a really strange location. It was, it was never a campaign that was going to go anywhere, and yet he channeled, um, I think, the yearnings of a, of a liberal nation into almost toppling the most formidable and most experienced presidential candidate maybe ever uh, in the history-making um, potential of Hillary Clinton. I, I do think there's a, there's a through line in this of, of people just wanting to believe in something and, and, and yearn for something bigger than themselves. And I think uh, Trump, in his own way, did that for Republicans. He spoke to them in a way that others others hadn't. Uh, I don't think his was a particularly uplifting campaign, but I do think for a lot of people who felt like they had been kind of the, the doormat of society for a long time, there was a chance of uplift, that he was going to go and punch some people in the nose and fight for them. And I, I think Bernie Sanders uh, had a lot of parallels on the left, and Beto O'Rourke. There's something about these the, the leaders that are able to go viral, catch fire in today's politics that, that lifts it up. There's a clarity of purpose in Bernie Sanders. You ask about what he stands for. He's been saying the same things for 40 years. Uh, you can go $27. back and, Yeah, I mean, the, the millionaires and the billionaires. We, <laughs> yeah. we can hear it in our heads still. He's been he's, you know, running in Vermont for a long time, do, saying the same things, and he has seen the political movement writ large kind of move in his direction. There's something about that clarity that I think is just appealing. And the fact that a 70-something guy from Vermont could become this, you know, the candidate of young people is a pretty, pretty remarkable thing that I think speaks to the power of that message. Nancy Cordes, um, Rick just mentioned young people. In passing, somebody beforehand mentioned guns. Uh, I'm struck by the extent to which you've not heard much about this as a rallying cry. About a year and a half, I mean, a year and a few weeks after the massacre in Las Vegas. I mean, bump stocks are still largely available in most states. Right. I mean, the outrage passed. Everybody thought that it was going to be a new generation of young people out of, um, you know, Stoneman Douglas High. It's a high school that was not far from my high school where I grew up. Where I grew up. 
again, it dissipated. And it reminds me at the, you know, the turn of the century and Al Gore running and being mindful of not losing Missouri a year after the Columbine massacre. That conventional wisdom, I guess, still holds for the Democratic Party. It really does. Um, you know, you do have some uh, red and purple state Democratic senators who say that they wish that they had voted a different way on the uh, assault weapons ban. I think your Senator Mark Warner is one of them. Uh, but by and large, um, the reality is that uh, even for a lot of Democrats in Congress, this is a, a tricky issue. Um, I've been covering Congress for 10 years now, and after every mass shooting uh, on the evening news, they asked me to do the story about, will Congress do anything this time? And the answer is, pretty much always the same. Um, bump stocks that you brought up, you know, you had Republicans and Democrats coming out and saying, this has to change, you know, bump stocks um, don't serve a, a, a legitimate uh, self-protection, service of self-protection, and it's clearly sort of a gray area in the law and we need to do something. Nothing has been done. Um, and so uh, I think that for some Democrats, um, you know, they worry about the political hit, hit they'll take. For other Democrats, they just feel so discouraged on the issue. They say, well, you know, I, I can go out there and bang my head against the wall, but it's not going to be successful, so why even start? And so, you know, often you see this debate kick up after a mass shooting and then very quickly wrap and up and move not, on to something it's else. It's still not part of the progressive bill of particulars. I mean, Ocasio-Cortez might say something to that effect, but other people in, in purplish areas are more muted about it. Right. I, I think th there's a couple things that happen here. One is just the speed of the news cycle. And we have these national moments of mourning and, uh, and, and then the, the anger and the call to action. And then something else happens really fast. And we're not, we're not talking about it again. And in fact, Parkland uh, and Stoneman Douglas lasted longer than most. And it did feel like something. And those, those students have been traveling around, registering people, the Giffords group, the Bloomberg group. They are working with candidates. They're trying to make uh, this election cycle different. But to that point, the, the, the issue for the, the gun control side is that they have not they, they have a majority on a bunch of issues, like assault weapons ban. They have a clear polling majority on that, on universal background checks, bump stocks. Very, very clear. But it is not a voting issue in the same way that even going a, a scintilla of difference against the gun rights lobby, the Second Amendment, the NRA folks is. And they have, have a proven ability to have people show up and you know, end the jobs of people who go and oppose the agenda. And I think until or unless... The other side, the Bloombergs and the Giffords and the Parkland kids are able to do something similar. It is, it's not going to be part of a national political agenda because Democrats just realize they need to win in places where that just doesn't work. Yeah, it's definitely an asymmetrical issue. And remember, there was that moment where Donald Trump, it was, I think it was right after Parkland, where he seemed as if he would back some gun, gun control policies that Democrats could get behind. And then he had dinner at the White House with an NRA lobbyist. And then the next day... <laughs> changed on a dime. And then it was, well, we can get behind this bump stock issue, which now is a regulatory issue. And I think there's still something like 90 days uh, for the public comment period to work, work its way through. So we're still, to your point, we're still not, there's still no you know, definitive answer on the whole bump stock issue. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Ace the Midterms, full disclosure, live from the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. We are here with Jeff Bennett of NBC News, Nancy Cordes of CBS News, Rick Klein of ABC News, it is, a, it is a trifecta. It's just never been accomplished before. It's like beyond the McDLT or, or Chick-fil-A merging with In-N-Out Burger. I just that, want to toot my own horn, and the audience is just here. It's wrapped. Um, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, I'd like to bring the talk back to Virginia. 
And we have two Democratic uh, senators here, U.S. senators in Virginia. Um, we have a Democratic governor in Ralph Northam. And Ralph Northam on the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, talk to me about this. This you think would have been taboo when we were talking about Obamacare. Remember all the ads that ran against the public option? Suddenly the public option's not so bad as a boogeyman. No, in fact, a lot of Democrats think it's their winning issue. I mean, if you go, you don't hear about it a ton at the national level, but when you go to these individual races, it is the number one issue in Democratic ads. Wouldn't you say oh, no question. Obamacare? And, and it actually has become a big issue in Republican ads because Republicans have found their love of pre-existing conditions, preservation, <laughs> yeah. as a result of this. And uh, it's remarkable how many of them are talking about the personal stories I would never get rid of, I would never get rid of, even though, of course, they voted against many times and their, their attorneys general are suing to get rid of. This is actually, I think it's an undertold story of the midterms is the Medicaid expansion that, that, that you mentioned. The Democrats are likely to win a whole bunch of governorships. Um, and they're likely to do it in a bunch of states that haven't done Medicaid expansion in, in the past. It would be an enormous deal if there were Democratic governors in Florida uh, and Georgia and Wisconsin and Ohio and Iowa and Maine that would be expanding Medicaid coverage under the, under the old Obamacare law. A very big deal that would actually impact people's lives in a tangible way overnight. And we talk about these things, the control of the House and the Senate are obviously very big deals, but people would get health care very, very quickly that don't have it now. And Nancy's right. It's a remarkable turnabout. We remember uh, Joe Manchin famously uh, took, took, a, took a shotgun and, and shot a hole in, in the Obamacare law when he was running for his first full term in the Senate. Uh, now he is shooting against the lawsuit that would get rid of Obamacare. Literally, that's what's happening in this ad, a full turnabout in terms of the politics. I was just in uh, Georgia on Monday, and I interviewed Stacey Abrams, who's fine to become the first African-American woman governor in the country. And I asked her what the biggest issue is in her race for, for governor against Brian Kemp, who's the current secretary of state. She said Medicaid expansion. That is how, and you know, she wouldn't say that if she didn't think that that was a winning issue, not just with Democrats, but also with independents, because there is a sense that this is money that the federal government put out there for the states, and that whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, if you refuse to take that money, that you are, you are hurting your state in a whole host of ways. So, there are, so Democrats, at least, think that this is a very powerful issue, and Obamacare polls much differently now uh, among voters than it did a few years ago. Voters who, who may not uh, love the bill, love, love the law, may not have loved it before, but saw that Republicans didn't necessarily have a coherent plan to replace it when they worked on coming up with something. And so, you know, they feel like, you know, if we get rid of this, what are we replacing it with? And it was just this morning that the president tweeted uh, that he supports pre-existing conditions in the ACA, and he says any Republican who doesn't support it will after I talk to yeah, them. Yeah, send them to me. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, but of course his administration supported that lawsuit brought by Texas and some 20 other states that would have overturned uh, the ACA, including pre-existing conditions. In the few minutes that we have left, I'd love for you guys to take it to the prediction game. We are oh, a few no. weeks away from this. In fact, the hot election here, Abigail Spamberger against Dave Bratt. Dave Bratt himself, a product of a, that revolution in 2014, unseating Eric Cantor, I, I remember it was unthinkable. That seat, if you think back to it, what Tom Bliley, going back, the last time a Democrat held it was in the early 70s, where a Democrat definitionally was very different. And I don't believe a woman has ever won that seat. What do you think her chances are? I think the waves are real. They crash in big ways. I remember in 2006, there was, you know, no one really gave 
the Democrats a chance of taking the Senate. Uh, in large part, they needed to win six seats. One of them was right here in Virginia. That was one of the, ups, the true upsets of, of the night. Um, in a wave environment, that, that goes to the Democrats. And that's, that's part of, that, that, that takes you beyond 23 into the, you know, into the 30s or 40s if you're talking about Dave Bratt's seat. Um, you know, th there's, a, there's a lot of popularity for President Trump in lots of parts of the country, including right here in Virginia. And that is a, and the, 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 the strength of the economy is a big potential cross current. But um, one lesson I've learned in, in covering these things is that it, it, things tend to tip, a lot of the close races end up tipping in the same direction. Uh, and if that holds, then I think Virginia is gonna have a, a delegation that's gonna be a lot bluer than it is right now. Um, I got out of the prediction business on November 9th, 2016. <laughs> same here, same here. I am willing to go out on a limb and say that Tim Kaine is going to win. <laughs> well, hold up. His Senate I'll, seat. I'll unpack that a little more for me and Corey Stewart. Um, I understand it might feel good from the kind of a Freedom Caucus to run a guy who's out there apologizing on behalf of the Confederacy and, and whatnot, but doesn't that just energize people who otherwise wouldn't show up to kind of go up against the boogeyman. Like, this is where I try to understand, shouldn't somebody in the party saying, no, let's just run a guy that's, that's bound to lose the, anyway? That not... assumes that the party has, exactly. has that control. But I thought it did with someone like a Mitch McConnell or the head no. of the RNC. No. I, I, it gives the impression, like the Wizard of Oz, that it's a lot more organized and tactical. <laughs> not than anymore. No. Yeah, Look, no, if, no, no. if the party was in control, Donald Trump would not be president right now. He was, every, he was Mitch president McConnell's <laughs> 17th out of 17 Republican candidates when it came to who, who the Republican leader wanted to see And he goes into this election, I saw, with 85% approval rating among Republicans by Gallup. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I, it's you know, we'd also be talking about House Speaker Eric Cantor right now in all likelihood in that, in that environment where Republicans get to choose these things. There's, it's, a, it's a big myth that there are party bosses anymore. I mean, I, I just, that's just not the way it works anymore. Um, we mentioned on the other side, Ocasio-Cortez literally beat the party boss of Queens, New York in that, in that race. It just, it, both parties have, I, whether it's a combination of things and with social media and uh, the disaggregation of people from political parties, they don't tend to identify independence with the fastest growing group, um, or just the parties losing touch with their bases. Th there is no top down. This is, it's not like Republicans sat in a room at the RNC headquarters and said, you know what we need in Virginia is Corey Stewart. That's not what happened. And, and if they had tried to do it, it might've backfired on them. They, often when you choose someone, you don't get it. And, and probably Republican uh, leaders did try to recruit stronger candidates, but those candidates took a pass because they thought it would be too difficult to unseat Tim Kaine. And so that's how you ended up with, with Corey Stewart beating a sort of lackluster Republican field. Jeff Bennett, go, go, go off the ranch for uh, me and make a crazy the, well, prediction. Well, the thing I'm paying close attention to is what the president says to keep his base of support, his supporters, motivated. So he's on this Midwest or this Western swing right now, uh, hitting three states in support of uh, Senate candidates. And so, you know, one of the things he's focused on right now is this migrant caravan coming from Honduras, making its way slowly, it appears, to the U.S. And he's trying to talk about immigration because he knows these cultural issues work well for him. And so the thing I've been talking to White House officials about is how do you keep that emotional intensity going for the next two or three weeks? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? The NFL, he's already done. Uh, so one of the things I'm hearing that he's going to do is talk about what he wants to do after the midterms. And so apparently the next, the, the post-midterm, post-Kavanaugh agenda, he's going to talk more about uh, 
criminal justice, not criminal justice, prison reform, which is very different than criminal justice reform. And apparently medical marijuana, this is something that he wants to get behind uh, after the election. Mitch McConnell has talked about moving uh, to, to hemp farming in, in Kentucky to make up for all the lost uh, money behind ta tobacco farming that's gone away. So there could be some, you know, some work to, that they could do together. And it would be a lot easier to do once you get Jeff Sessions out of the way, because <laughs> he's expected to either depart or be fired after the midterms. So, if, if, you know, as we go into these next couple of weeks, watch for the president to talk about what he wants to do. And is anybody even talking about Bobby Three Sticks anymore? I mean, this was the news everybody was waiting around the fireplace for. You know, the the, the, the report's going to come out. This will give Mueller? the Dems well, the, the chance to impeach him. Well, that report has been coming out since January of last <laughs> year, I think. First, it was the president's lawyers telling him that the report was going to come out soon so that he wouldn't take any sort of negative actions <laughs> against uh, Mueller or his team. Uh, but I think Bloomberg has it that the report's going to come out after, uh, right after the midterms. NBC hasn't independently confirmed that. The truth Nobody is really only knows. Robert Mueller yeah, knows what Robert yeah. Mueller's going to do. At, at this point, it seems unlikely he's going to do anything before the midterms. Um, it, that's, but that's just us speculating. It seems like he's kind of taken, taken that off. I, am, I, I think Jeff's right. Like Looking at what the president says over the next couple of weeks is going to be fascinating. I think, there's a, I think he's worried, and I think you're starting to see it seep through in, in what he is trying to put out there. I think you see him go on the offense, as he often does, uh, taking this the migrant caravan issue and saying this is because of Democrats' policies and they're trying to take over our country. But that, that Medicaid, uh, so, sorry, the pre-existing conditions tweet, that was purely defensive. That was, that's not often what you see from President Trump. That was him recognizing, to my mind, that the Democrats are onto something pretty powerful and their guys are getting hammered on this and he needed to find a way to try to rebut it and just say, this isn't an issue, guys. Don't look at this at all. That, you don't see that move from President Trump that often. So to me, it's it said that he's looking at numbers and, and he sees a landscape out there that isn't quite the red wave prediction that he talks about yeah. publicly. It's part of the reason why he's giving so many interviews. He's talking to pretty much any and everybody. He talked to the New York Times today. He talked to AP yesterday. Uh, he's, he's done a bunch of Fox News interviews. And part of that is because Fox News has stopped airing his rallies in prime time because they are, they're not doing well in the ratings because they're so predictable now. It's, it almost follows a formula. Uh, and so he's told his aides that he wants to speak to mainstream news outlets. Uh, the 60 Minutes interview is an example of that. Um, to, to flood the zone and to get his message out to as many people as possible beyond sort of the, you know, Trump-friendly news outlets that he typically talks He's to. He's also doing some damage control in advance, too, sort of laying the groundwork for this message that if my party does lose seats, it's not my fault. But if they win seats, it was it's, all me. It's all him. <laughs> Probably the, the 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 least surprising headline of all time. Right? <laughs> I will not accept blame if I lose. Right. Jeff Bennett, Nancy Cordes, Rick Klein. I cannot thank you enough for joining us here in Richmond. Tonight's event was produced by Emily Shane. Our audio engineers are John Valentine, Sam Prickett, and Ryan Marasco. Listen to us on NPR One and on iTunes. You could subscribe at fulldradio.com. In January, alack, full disclosure will start airing on member station WCVRVA. The sumptuous feast you're about to enjoy was cooked up in a collaboration by Karina's Jamaican, Eat Restaurant Partners, and Performance. You have to kiss chefs Mike Lindsay and Patrick Roper if you see them outside. Heartfelt thank yous to Stu Glazer, Ellie Hannibal, The Martin Agency, The Hodges Partnership, Virginia's Foundation for Public Media, VCU, U of R, Professor Sharon Burnham, Karina and Randolph, Chris and Chris, Mike and Thomas, Dalal and Dan, and Uncle Phil Rudder. Full disclosure, we are getting out our base, splitting the ticket. Dinner's being served, so you better go hit it. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.